Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile AF, the podcast. This is episode 117 called Elena. Today's sponsor is Circle Surrogacy and Egg Donation. Making the decision to use an egg donor to grow your family can feel a little overwhelming. With a database of hundreds of bright, generous young women and an experienced egg donation team, Circle Surrogacy and Egg Donation can partner with you to find the perfect egg donor match so you can have the family of your dreams. With over 25 years of experience and a 99.3% success rate, Circle Surrogacy and Egg Donation is ready to help make parenthood possible for you. Learn more at circlesurrogacy.com. Thanks, Circle. Guys, before we get started, I wanted to tell everybody that Fertility Rally membership just turned one on June 1st. So in honor of our first birthday, our membership is now open and we are offering a very, very special birthday deal. Our annual rate is only $129, which is $70 off our normal rate. So if you are interested, if you're looking for a community of women who get it, you want to feel supported and empowered and educated, head over to fertilityrally.com and sign up. We are open until June 7th. All right, guys, let's talk about my guest today. Elena Ridley is a proud donor egg mama, and she is one of the OG members of the infertility Instagram community. She is going to tell me her whole story today, starting with meeting her husband in high school, the horrible motorcycle accident they had that delayed their family building plans, and what went wrong when they actually did start to try. We're also going to talk about IUIs, why she started posting about infertility back in 2013 when not many people were doing it, endometriosis, and their decision to use an egg donor and where they are with everything today. So she's amazing. She is a Illinois girl like myself. So we got along great. She's super cool. Definitely go follow her on Instagram. I'm going to put her handle and everything in the episode notes and also on social media. But I just want to thank Elena for sharing it. And without further ado, this is Elena's infertility story. Hey, Elena, thank you so much for doing this. I'm so glad we finally got to connect. Yes. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I'd love to start with you and your husband. When did you guys meet? So my husband and I met, we actually went to the same high school Mm -hmm. and his younger brother, who is my age and my best friend since kindergarten, they began dating our sophomore year. So I was, I spent a lot of time around my husband and his family throughout high school. And just, you know, I've always known the Ridley family through my best friend. And then when I was a senior in college, my husband, Joe and I kind of just reconnected via MySpace. MySpace was a thing back then. So we kind of just messaged each other a little bit on there. Um, I was going to Illinois State University at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and we just we just kind of reconnected through MySpace and we ended up just kind of hanging out a little bit and like the rest is history. So I've known him for a long time. Um, and we began pretty much dating in, in 2008 and got married in 2011. Mm-hmm. So this will be our 10th wedding anniversary this year, which I cannot believe. Oh, happy anniversary. anniversary almost. 
Thank you. Thank you. It's been a, it feels like our wedding was like three years ago and I can't believe it's been 10 and it's been a very quick 10 years. Um, Uh Some years that felt very, very slow and painful because of infertility, but um, it's been a great, great 10 years. We've gotten to do so much. We've built a home, we've done, you know, cruising and traveling and we've been, we do a lot of motorcycle riding and stuff like that. So yeah, it's been a great, great 10 years of marriage and 13 years of being together. And that's kind of how we got started. Just a little small town, you know, acquaintances basically. So let's talk about, you know, I love how you are so open with your infertility journey on social media and stuff. And, you know, it's, it's really appreciated, I think by so many that you're, you're kind of an open book and, you know, always answering people's questions and supporting other people. So let's talk about that piece of it. When did you guys start to try to have kids? And then when did you figure out something was not going well? So we were pretty much ready to try for children right away. As soon as we got married, we really were, I had actually stopped birth control about three months before we got married, knowing that we were going to probably, you know, pursue that right away. I was 25. So I felt like that was a good age. Um, We had gotten to do a lot of things being together for three years before we got married. So I felt like we were both, you know, we were, we were comfortable where we were and we were ready. So we started trying right away. Um, Mm -hmm. I actually naively thought that I was pregnant on our honeymoon because my period was like, you know, a day late Mm -hmm. before I knew anything about infertility or really anything about how, I mean, I knew the very, very basics of getting pregnant, but you know, you become like an expert level after. Totally. (laughs) So yeah, we had started trying right away. We tried for about six months and then we were in a really bad motorcycle accident and in April of 2012. So we were married in September of 2011. And then Uh in April of 2012, we got in the accident and that put a little bit of a hold on things because my leg was broken in like five places. Whoa, what happened? a guy ran a red light at an intersection and we T-boned him and the motorcycle that we were on, my husband had just spent the entire winter rebuilding. It was mm-hmm. the third time of us riding it Oh my god! and it didn't have like a backrest or anything. So I was just kind of holding on. We were about two miles from our house mm-hmm. and luckily the intersection that we were going through was a slower, like a 35 mile an hour zone. So it wasn't, you know, I mean, it was definitely scary, but we could see that it was going to happen. So we kind of just braced ourselves for impact. And I ended up with five broken bones in my leg. Oh my God. My hip, my knee, my two of my toes and my ankle. I had to have surgery. I had to have physical therapy for eight months. Mm -hmm. Um, I had to have my surgery at rush in Chicago Mm because no one local would touch it. And my husband had six stitches in his shin. That was it. So, oh my God, (laughs) the total brunt of that accident. Oh, Um, wow. Yeah. So that kind of put a little bit of a, you know, we had to stop for a little while just because it was just pretty much impossible to even try, you know, to get pregnant with a broken Mm -hmm. leg. But so we did try for two years before we got referred to an actual reproductive endocrinologist. Mm -hmm. After a year, I definitely knew that something was wrong. I had asked about several different things we had done some initial blood work. Um, we did an HSG, the doctor, the OB that I was seeing at the time even recommended trying things like Reiki, you know, in the infertility community or just like in the yoga community that's referred to as like woo woo mm-hmm. types of things, which I was totally into. I loved Reiki and I was, I wanted to try all the things, you know, same I was, here. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, why not? Standing yeah. on your head in the middle of your living room? Yes. Sure. Going crazy? Sure. What, you know, um, <laughs> cervical mucus, temping, mm-hmm. um, ovulation predictors, all the things. And mm-hmm. we did all of that stuff. Um, we did have an HSG and a semen analysis and some of the blood work for ovulation and everything was fine. No block tubes, not, nothing. So it was two years of trying. And then in 2013, we were finally referred to an RE and we did our first, uh, we did a laparoscopy right off the bat. And then we did our first IUI. So that was kind of like the start of our journey with infertility treatment. So what little idea of what was actually wrong? Yeah. Did they tell you, did you get a diagnosis at that point? We got no diagnosis. He basically based, you know, just that initial, he really wanted to just get me going right away based on what all my previous blood work had been. Joe semen analysis was fine. My blood work was fine. HSG was fine. Laparoscopy did show some very, very mild endometriosis, which he cauterized. He felt confident that he, you know, that where, what I had as far as endometriosis didn't need any treatment. And he was like, we're doing an IUI like immediately. So we Mm -hmm. did. And he just, I think felt like maybe it was unexplained Mm -hmm. um, at the time. He didn't say anything about like egg quality. I mean, nothing really, just basically things look pretty good. Let's try an IUI. It's probably going to work because everything looks great on paper. Okay. So how were you feeling like emotionally at this point? Like thinking, okay, we've got a plan. Like it's going to happen. Yeah. I was ready to go. I was like, do the IUI right now. Like I'm ready. You know, I was we were two years into trying at this point. So we were really, really ready to be pregnant, like Uh really ready. And, you know, I think we both felt very optimistic, even the doctor, you know, he was a great doctor. And I think he really, truly felt like kind of based on how everything looked that, you know, we could probably do a couple IUIs and be out of there with a baby. So Uh that was kind of where our mindset was, you know, we were thinking, you know, okay, we can do a couple of these. Um, I had really good in insurance coverage at the time for infertility. So I could do pretty much whatever I wanted. Uh-huh. All beds covered and all that. So we were definitely ready to hit it like quickly. Okay. So what happened with the IUI? The first IUI actually ended up failing. I just did like a Clomid, you know, just your basic general first IUI where, mm-hmm. you, you know, they don't really do any, don't do any follistim or anything. And uh, it failed. And we decided to jump into another one right away using the injectables. So we did the file stim and everything to kind of be a little more aggressive mm-hmm. as they would refer to it. Okay. So that's what we did. Okay. And with the, with the second IUI, we ended up actually getting a positive beta first time uh-huh. ever. How did that feel to see that or to get those results? It was amazing. Um, it was a very low beta. It only came back at a 20. So they told me, you know, you need to be very cautiously optimistic about this. And, you know, we really need to have you go back and test again in 48 hours. And she, she told me, you know, she's like, I've seen a beta this low result in a pregnancy. I've seen it result in a loss. There's really, you know, you could barely see the line on the pregnancy test, but it was there. And, and we did our test, our second test and it had doubled up to 50. So we were feeling pretty good. Mm -hmm. Um, and then that weekend that was on like a Friday. And I remember on that weekend, I ended up having some really, really heavy bleeding. So I knew that on Monday for my third beta, I knew that it was pretty much over by then. So, Mm. um, it was completely devastating, but I did feel a lot of people don't really like this sentiment associated with miscarriages and chemical pregnancies, but I did feel as though I can get pregnant. Mm Mm-hmm. Like I had a pregnancy. That's awesome. You know what I mean? Like it absolutely was heartbreaking. It sucked so bad after, 
you know, two and a half years, I was pregnant for right. I understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Didn't feel like okay, this can happen. So we actually tried a third IUI, and they had me on the lowest dose of Falistim, and I was producing like a lot of eggs, way too many to be able to do an IUI. So they ended up canceling our third one because I had, you know, I don't know, six or seven follicles and they Mm -hmm. really want you to have one or two at the most for an Mm -hmm. IUI. So they recommended, they said, well, you can either continue with these IUIs or we can just go straight to IVF. You're responding, you're over responding almost, you know, almost being overstimulated with these meds. And there's a potential that that could happen again. If we shoot for an IUI, you could end up with the same results and, if with IVF, you know, we want more eggs. So we were like, let's do it. Yeah. Let's um, do the IVF. You mean? Yeah. Let's do yeah. the IVF. And our clinic, that clinic only did IVF cycles every eight weeks. So like everybody was on the same schedule. Okay. So we had to wait about two months before we were even able to get on that schedule. So it gave us some time to like really think about it and prepare and get our meds and just get ready for that whole process mentally. Uh huh. Um, because we were also building our house at the same time and living in my parents' basement. Okay. So, uh, we had a lot going on. A lot time. going on. Yeah. Yeah. So, but we were excited. You know, I had that renewed sense of hope like, okay, IVF, that's going to be it. Like, uh huh. And I think that his staff and, you know, the nurse, and I think they all kind of felt that way. And finally, that July, so July of 2014, so almost a year into our treatment with our RE, Mm -hmm. um, we finally did our first round of IVF and I had 34 eggs retrieved, which I thought was like so amazing. That's a lot. I was definitely overstimulated, but I didn't know any better. I thought that Uh was so great, you know, Uh 21 of them. Let's see. What was it? 30, 34 retrieved, 21 fertilized. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I had seven blasts. Okay. I was happy with that number. I was like, right. that's a good number. Uh-huh. Uh, but in terms of blasts to eggs retrieved, it's really not that great. Mm. You know, it's not a, a good percentage of how many eggs I had retrieved. But again, you know, I was early into this and I really didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. That clinic did not grade embryos. So everything that was a blastocyst to them was pretty much considered like a good quality embryo grading is one of those things that is so like subjective it is yeah and all the labs and clinics are different yeah there's no like across the board system really that was frustrating for me that they didn't but I trusted them again I really didn't know any better I only knew what I was learning from the community on Instagram and what I was teaching myself through connecting with people on Instagram and then reading blogs and forums Mm -hmm. and stuff like that Mm -hmm. Um, Instagram was not what it is today. The community was so much smaller, but there was still a lot of people to touch, you know, base. Yeah. So when did you start your Instagram account? I actually started my Instagram when I was laid up from a motorcycle accident in 2012. And I first started posting about infertility in 2013 when we were, you know, like with our first IUI and like the endo or the Uh laparoscopy and stuff. So I, I started sharing about it pretty openly right away. Okay. Quotes and things like that, you know. So yeah, that's so um, great. And were you getting? You were connecting with people, and I'm sure you know, still know some of those people today, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Some uh, some of us are still around today. Some people, you know, you haven't heard from in all those years, and you hope that you know they that their journey turned out to be whatever it was that they were 
before, but um, yeah, there was a very small group of us on there and a lot of us are still here. Yeah. But yeah, it, it was, it was a great place to be able to learn a little bit. And uh, there was a lot more blogging going on in those days. Okay. Yeah. Um, myself included, I had started a blog also while I was, you know, laid up on the motorcycle accident. So um, I was reading a lot of blogs and just teaching myself how things, you know, what was normal and, and, and all that. So mm-hmm. So we did that first round of IVF and our first transfer failed, which was horrible, you know, because again, you have that renewed sense of hope. You think, oh, it's IVF. It's going to work. Right. It's not a guarantee. But as much as you know that, it's still, you know, you still get excited and of course, like this is going to work and everything. And when it didn't, it was super hard. But again, I was just, we were ready to just be pregnant. So we did two back-to-back FETs just right away. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so between July and December, we had done the three transfers, one embryo at a time and had no pregnancies. Oh my gosh. So um, can I ask you, how is this affecting your relationship? Like I've been very open about how it was really hard on my marriage. So, you know, where you got, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of differences between men and women, the way that they grieve and the way that they go through this, even if you're going through the same thing, it's a totally sure. different experience. So Absolutely. how are you guys? We were pretty good. Again, we were living in my parents' basement and we were building this house and we were building a lot of this house by ourselves. We did, we were the general contractors. So there was a lot wow. of from that. And in December, when the third transfer failed, my husband was like, I am totally happy if we have no kids and I think we need to take a break and I think we need to reevaluate. Where me, I was like, no, you know, I wanted to just keep going, but mm-hmm. I, we did end up taking a break. We took a little vacation and then we, kind of regrouped and found another RE in Illinois down at Southern Illinois University in Springfield. Okay. Dr. Lorette DeMola. And we got a second opinion from him and just kind of regrouped. You know what I mean? And he was happy with that. Joe was very like, I'm happy as long as we're doing whatever you want to do and you're happy with it. You know yeah. I mean? And how old were you at this point? Because you you said you started to try pretty young, right? Yeah, I would have been like 27, 28. So still very young in the scheme of infertility. Yeah, yeah. Joe had just, Joe had turned 30 in 2013. So he was like 31. So we were still, yeah. I mean, I still felt confident, but you know, it was that we were already, you know, three years into trying to have a kid. So yeah, it was, it was hard, but we've always just felt like we would, you know, we've always done a lot of traveling and stuff like that, which is really good for, um, you know, not so much anymore now that we're parents and all this, you know, COVID and stuff kind of dampered all that last year. But yeah, you know, it's a lot harder to travel with kids, you know, on a motorcycle. I can't really do that. So right, little sidecar, her bike. <laughs> that's the plan when she gets a little bit older. Yeah, that's um, so cool. But we used to do a lot of camping. We would take our bike and you know pack tents and go, you know, just short little trips and stuff. So we did a lot of that which is very healing, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And we always connected that way. So our marriage did pretty, pretty well, despite being, you know, building this house, living in Mm -hmm. my parents' basement and all those things. But Mm -hmm. we did pretty well through it all, even though it was a stressful time. We came out on top, I think. That's good to hear. (laughs) Okay. So tell me about the new, so now you're at the new clinic with the new doctor and what did they say? Did they say anything differently? Did they do different tests that you hadn't had before or what happened? So the new doctor did do some other things differently. He was much more conservative with his protocol. Uh, He definitely explained to me that I was way overstimulated and he talked a lot about 
one quality over quantity. Mm -hmm. Um, and that we wanted to get, you know, like half of what we had gotten the first time, if not less. Mm -hmm. Um, he wanted me to have about 12 to 15 eggs at the most. Okay. So we did a lot more of a conservative protocol. He treated me for my endometriosis for three months. So I saw him in January and I didn't end up doing IVF with him until July of that year of 2015. So it was six months of him, you know, doing testing, monitoring, having me do the Lupron Depot shots, which are like these intermuscular shots that you do in your booty once a month to Uh help with endometriosis. I personally didn't feel like it was necessarily worth it, but he wanted to kind of cover all the bases. He also had me do the Receptiva test. It tests for this beta-3 integrin protein, I think it's called. And there's a lot of debatable research out there about whether or not that's actually necessary to have. And Mm -hmm. I did not have it. So they did put me on a protocol for that as well. That test was really, really new at the time. I know it's a lot more common now. They do it kind of in conjunction with the ERA a lot more mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Um, but at the time, nobody had really had one of those before. There was nobody I could really find to connect with that had any information on it. And then when I found out that I was negative for it, it was even harder to find anybody that had done it. But they they put me on a protocol for that, which was uh-huh. a couple months of extra estrogen or something. Okay. Does that, it has something to do with the uterine lining, right? And like... Yes. Okay. Yes. It's a protein that they want to be present there that they say helps with implantation. Implantation. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, but now that I've been pregnant and I... And although it's, you know, not my DNA, my child is not my DNA... I don't feel like that's maybe necessary since I was able to carry a pregnancy, but I did appreciate that he was doing all the things, you know, even though it was a very long drawn out six months of waiting to do IVF. Right. And that was a very, very devastating transfer and just whole process. I ended up with only 10 eggs retrieved Okay. and only five of them fertilized. No, only five of them were mature, mm-hmm. the 10. And they actually called me on day three and said that there was only two embryos left and they wanted them to be transferred immediately. So instead of doing a five day, which is the traditional way to do it anymore, Mm -hmm. um, three days, kind of the old school way anymore. So I was really devastated. I knew right away. I was like, this isn't going to work. I just knew I had a feeling. So we drove down to Springfield, which is about two hours away, did the transfer and then found out, you know, that it had failed and we had no, nothing to freeze there. You know, Mm -hmm. we had nothing left because everything else had stopped growing. So Mm -hmm. when I did my WTF appointment with him for my follow-up after it failed, he like really wanted me to meet with him on the phone or in person, not on the phone. Mm -hmm. And so I made my two-hour drive all the way down there to talk to him in person. Mm -hmm. And I just was thinking to myself, what could he possibly have to say to me that he could not say to me over the phone about why he thinks this failed? Yeah. Because again, on paper, everything on my end, my AMH, my FSH, all my levels, you know, my progesterone, my estrogen, vitamin D, all the things are like perfect. Uh And so that was the first mention to me of possibly needing an egg donor because he said that our embryologist had noticed that I have a harder outer shell on my eggs. Mm Mm-hmm. So I was like completely devastated because that never even crossed my mind just based on everything that I knew about how my body was and what my numbers were. Right. 
And I was very angry at him. And I left that clinic because I had no ties there. Any, you know, I had no embryos and I thought I'm done. That's fine. It is what it is. What did your husband think? Well, he wasn't with you at that appointment, right? No, I went down to that appointment myself. I recorded the doctor while he was talking, played it back for my husband. And like, you know, it's up to you what you want to do. So we actually still had two remaining embryos. I'm sorry. No, we had four remaining embryos left at our first clinic frozen. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And we decided, let's go back to Dr. G and see if maybe we can, now with this new information that we've gotten down there, maybe we can cross our notes together and figure something out. Yeah. So we did two more frozen transfers and we transferred, let's see, we did, we ended up transferring two of them and neither of those transfers took. So we did two more frozen transfers back to back. Nothing. Right. So, so we're, have you had like an emotional breakdown at this point? I feel like you've been through so much. Yeah, I am like a pretty resilient person. I was going to say, you seem really strong just from talking to you. Like you're, yeah, I, I, and I really don't know, like, I'm just not a very, I'm not, not that I'm not an emotional person. Cause I can absolutely be an emotional person, especially now being a mom. Like I, it, everything makes me cry now, but uh-huh. you know, days, like I was, I am, I'm a very resilient person. It takes a lot for me to break. And, you know, of course, like I was heartbroken every single time, but all I cared about was becoming a mom. There was no other option for me. Like I wasn't going to go, I was going to be a mom one way or the other, no matter what way it took. Yeah. So all I, my focus is like the end game. Right. You're like, what's next? What's next? I'm like, okay, I'm going to cry about it for today. And then I'm going to move on. And tomorrow I'm going to call the next doctor and like, I'm going to start the process all over again. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. like, wow, she's nuts because she doesn't even give herself a break in between. But again, I had the infertility coverage. So I was doing all this stuff. I mean, and everything was covered. So I was like, why not? Mm-hmm. You know, let's just keep doing it. Right. So I, we kind of regrouped. Um, that was in July. And then we decided to look into one more doctor in Illinois. He was the number one rated doctor in Illinois at the time, Dr. Sherbon at Advanced Fertility in the suburbs. Uh-huh. Um, so now we're going the different direction, two hours. Oh my God. <laughs> You're up by me. <laughs> yeah. So he's in, Ger- his office was in Gurney. Okay. So I was driving by to- Great America. Yeah. Right by Great America. Yeah. Literally at the same exit. Oh um, my God. So it's like you could ride the demon to- or you can get an egg, egg yeah. <laughs> retrieval. So I was driving for my monitoring appointments for all this stuff. I was leaving my house at, you know, four or five in the morning to get up to Gurney area to get monitored and be back to work by you know, seven or eight o'clock in the morning, my work has always been very flexible and understanding. Oh my God. What do you do for work? I work for the power company, um, uh-huh. Ameren, and I work, I'm an, an admin person for uh-huh. our company. I'm actually a union and I work in a small office here. So, and my, everyone in my office, just like everyone in my personal life and Instagram and everything knows all the details. Wow. That's so awesome. They were very flexible, but uh-huh. So we made an appointment with him in November of that year. That was 2015. And I'm like, we're going to give this one more shot with this number one doctor in Illinois. And, you know, you send all your records from all the things you've done up there. They review your records and you have a sit down with them at these consultations when you go the first time. And he tells me, you have a 63% chance of getting a positive result with me with one PGS tested normal embryo. So we were going to add PGS testing into the mix, which I wanted to do. I was ready. I was prepared for that. 
I had actually had a consultation with CCRM out in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Everybody is familiar with them because Juliana Rancic used them when she needed a gestational um, carrier and they're a very, very good, you know, highly rated clinic, mm-hmm. but we just couldn't make the logistics of that work. We probably could have um, to go out to Colorado. So I had actually been in touch with four clinics at this point about trying to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so Dr. Sherbon gave me those numbers and um, CCRM had actually highly suggested getting the screening, the PGS testing done. So I knew that I wanted to do that and we paid for that. That was the only thing we have ever had to pay for out of pocket. So, you know, we paid like five grand for that or whatever astronomical mm-hmm. number it was. Mm-hmm. And we did our retrieval. I had 16 eggs retrieved, 11 fertilized, which I was like, these are the numbers that I need. Like this mm-hmm. is great. Started off perfect. Plan was on day five or on day six, they were going to call me and tell me how many had progressed to day six for PGS testing. Cause typically with PGS, they go till day six. Mm-hmm. They call me on day five and I'm at work. Mm-hmm. It's like 10 o'clock in the morning. And they say, none of your embryos have progressed to blastocysts yet on day five. Mm-hmm. They're the stage before, or even before that not where they needed to be. And gotcha. said, we highly suggest that you come up here today for a transfer. Meanwhile, I'm, you know, in my head, I'm waiting for them to call me to tell me how many are going off to be frozen, you know, to be frozen and tested. And tested, my transfer yeah. is not going to be for another month. And they're telling me, oh, by the way, um, none of them have made it. And you need to be here in the next like three hours for a transfer. Oh my God. So yeah. So my like anxiety just went like skyrocket because I'm at work. So I had to, of course, you know, make my arrangements to leave work. Mm-hmm. At the time, Joe was working for a field tiling company. So he was out in the middle of a cornfield with no cell phone service. So trying to get a hold of him, mm. we raced up there. You know, it was just horrible. And oh God. talk about stressful. So stressful. They ended up transferring to the embryologist was like, I have really, really high hopes for one of these is looking really good. It might just be behind a little bit. You know, are they, I'm sure they just kind of tell you to at least make you feel a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And they're like, we're going to watch these other five and see where we're at tomorrow. And then we'll let you know. So mm-hmm. it was just stressful from that point on. Um, they called me the next day to tell me that none of them had made it far enough to be PGS tested. So mm-hmm. I didn't send any embryos off to be PGS tested. And then my beta was the day after Christmas mm-hmm. and it came back at an eight. So it oh. was even, I don't even technically you know, consider, I mean, I don't know if you can even consider that a pregnancy at this point. So it was horrible. And so sorry. Oh, that's so tough. Thank you. It was, it was. And I knew I had already put in my mind once that happened, I already had put in my mind, okay, this isn't going to work. This was my last shot with my own eggs. I'm not doing any more. I'm not, I'm getting off the crazy train. Crazy is when you keep doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results, right? (laughs) Right. Not doing that anymore. I've been doing that for that was two years into infertility treatment and oh. over four years of trying to get pregnant. I'm like, we're done with all yep. this. Yep. And so before I even knew my beta results, I had gotten my clinic that, so Dr. Sherban's clinic, I got the password for his donor database and started looking at their egg donors because mm-hmm. I thought, you know what, this is the route we're going to have to go. We're going to have yeah. to use an egg donor. I'm going to accept it now. So six months later, after being told you need an egg donor and me being like, Oh, H no, I'm not doing that. Yeah. I'm like, we're doing it. So I started like secretly looking at their profiles, didn't say anything to Joe about it Uh and just preparing myself. I just knew it was over. I was, I was not committed to that 
transfer at all anymore. I was totally checked out of it. Mm -hmm. And five days before my beta, I had gotten this message on Facebook from this girl. I didn't recognize the name. I had no idea who she was. And she just had messaged me saying, I have been following you for the longest time and I can see how much you want to be a mom. Like you have done so much. And I just, it's so devastating watching your journey. I would love to be like a surrogate or an egg donor for you. Whoa. And I was like, who the heck are you? (laughs) Right. We were friends on Facebook, but we were also friends on Instagram. And she had had a little bit of trouble conceiving her um, second child. So she was kind of in the infertility community a little bit. Um, I think just kind of like dipping her toe in to see because she was concerned about the length of time it was taking and everything. Mm -hmm. And that's how we connected. And one of the downsides about Instagram is you really you can really hide your identity. I mean, maybe it's not a downside. Maybe it's a good thing. People can make themselves pretty private there. So I didn't put two and two together of, I knew her from Instagram, but we were also Facebook friends Mm -hmm. on Facebook. It was her real name on Instagram. It was, you know, whatever her Instagram name was. So I finally, you know, after talking to her a little bit, we, I was like, okay, now I know who you are. You know, we had had just a few little messages here and there and nothing, you know, no real conversations much before that at all. I mean, nothing to that level of, you know, trust and, and depth of conversation. Right. So I was like, wow. You know, I was like, that is so sweet of you. I, and I did tell her, I said, I'm pretty sure we're going to probably end up going the egg donation route because once again, on paper, my body, there's no reason this shouldn't be happening, you know? Mm -hmm. So her and I started talking through Facebook Messenger. We ended up exchanging numbers and texting and just kind of getting to know each other. I learned that she lived in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Augusta, Georgia. And we uh, we lived in Illinois. So, you know, that was going to be a logistical thing right off the bat. Mm-hmm. She was a nurse at the time in a labor and delivery unit. So she was around babies all the time and she loves babies. And she had um, two babies of her own. Uh, she had a son who was not even a year old yet. And then she had a daughter who at the time was, I want to say she was like six. I mean, she was, she was younger. She was married, you know, like all the things. And she actually happened to somewhat look like me, fair skin, blue eyes, blonde hair. Mm -hmm. That was just like icing on the cake. I didn't even care if somebody was going to gift their eggs to me. I didn't care what they looked like. That meant nothing to me because what a gift to give to someone. Mm -hmm. So we just talked a lot and talked about you know, just our lives and got to know each other on a personal level and talked a lot about, you know, how we could potentially make this work and made sure that like, she was not catfishing me. Mm-hmm. Or right. And I finally told Joe about it one night. I was like, Hey, I've been talking to this girl for like three weeks now about all this. And what did he say he was like completely shocked. You know, he was like, wow, that's pretty amazing for someone to just like me, you know, wow. Like who would do that? And I just kind of gave him the scoop on it. And he said, I am fine as long as you give it like a few months. Like I want you to take a couple, like we need to take a little bit of a break. Mm -hmm. So her and I started talking in December and I gave him till March, which he probably would have preferred me to take a little bit longer of a break than that. Uh So by March, we were flying down to Augusta to meet our new Ari and meet our donor and her family. Oh my God. 
Yeah. So you've gotten to know her pretty well at this point or like as well as you can online, right? Uh, Yeah. We had definitely been texting very heavily. And of course, you know, once we decided we were going to go down there and meet them, we were coming up with all the plans we were going to do and all the restaurants we were going to go to and Uh melting pot and then go to the zoo and, you know, do all these things. So we flew down and met them and we got to have a long weekend with them and we had such a great time. They're just very like normal down to earth people, just like we are. They're not, you know, okay chill, you know, we connected her and I connected like off the bat right away. So I knew right away that we had a connection that I was comfortable with, but you yeah. know, and Joe and her husband too, right off the bat, you know, they're, you know, just all the guy things and all that. So, yeah. Um, so you're yeah. like, okay, we're not being catfished in the no way. Right, like, exactly. Yeah. We that's... had, a, we had a, a really good time and we met our doctor and we liked him too. Pretty old school. He actually really wanted to try me, me to try my own eggs because he was literally looking at my paperwork like, "Why has this not happened for you?" Based yeah. on things, and I'm like, "I don't know, but I cannot do another round of IVF." Like, yeah, I'm, I'm not so doing- glad that you held steady in your thoughts of that. You know, like to not get convinced to do oh, it again. Yeah. Like, I, I he he definitely planted a seed in my head that I that started to blossom a bit. And I did touch base with some people because he wanted to do something that I had never heard of before, which was a combination of Clomid and Falastim. Uh-huh. Um, because I think he, again, felt kind of like my second doctor that I was being like way overstimulated. Mm-hmm. And, but I just, I ultimately was like, no, mm-hmm. I'm not doing it. If I was going to do another IVF cycle, why would I go all the way to Georgia to do it for one? Right. Thing? Good Wait. for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we had just, you know, we had had such a great time with, with Amy, our donor and her family. And we just felt like that was the route to go. So she ended up having her consultation with him as well. Um, shortly after we left and we decided that was the route we wanted to go. And we, we pretty much kicked it off right away. She started her stims. We met them at the end of March and she started her stims at the end of May and had her retrieval done by June, I think it was like June 10th. And I, we had our transfer by June 16th. So it was Mm -hmm. like within about three months of meeting them and within six months of her and I's initial conversation. Wow. Okay. We were like moving pretty hardcore. Yeah, for sure. I I mean, you've been, you've been doing it for so long. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, like I said, I was always focused on that end game of I'm going to become a damn mom. I don't care what it takes. And that's what my focus was. And I'm, I'm a three, like I'm an Enneagram three and Uh I'm very goal oriented. I'm competitive. I'm an achiever. And when I set my mind to something like I'm going to go for it. So Mm -hmm. that's exactly how it played out. And so we did, we flew back down there in June. We had, she had 10 eggs retrieved and eight of them fertilized. And I was like, holy crap, her eggs are amazing. Mm -hmm. Way better than mine. And we ended up with six blasts and Mm -hmm. we transferred our most perfect one. And I found out I was pregnant when we came home. I had, you know, 11 days or something in between my beta and my beta was super duper high. It was mm-hmm. like almost a thousand. So oh everybody was like, Oh my God, it's twins. And I'm like, I don't think so. I, I mean, maybe, you know, the chances of it splitting, we only transferred one, but mm-hmm. now that I know four years of knowing my daughter, I know why she was, her beta was so high. She was making her presence known mm-hmm. um, like from day one. Oh my God. Her, her like from being an embryo, like I know her personality, like it all makes sense. You know what I mean? Oh, I love that. Yeah, it is. Like so this is Georgia. Wanted, it's your first. You know, she was here, you know, like I'm here, you know. Right. So just to clarify, this is your first transfer with the donor eggs. Yep. First one. Yeah. It was the a donor. Fresh okay. Yep. Fresh transfer. 
And I was pregnant the very first time. And that was the most pregnant I had ever been. Highest beta I've ever had. Oh my God. Yeah. That must have been, were you, did you have the mixed feelings of, you know, pregnancy after loss, which, you know, so many of us have experienced and, you know, it's like you want to temper your excitement, but you want to be so excited, but you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop because you're so used to disappointment. So how did you feel? I definitely felt conflicted a little bit. Like, you you know, you feel like you want to be excited. And I was, I was so excited and I felt so confident in it, but you always have that your entire pregnancy. You have that in the back of your mind that something's going to go wrong. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because Mm -hmm. every other time something had gone wrong. So I was definitely enjoying being pregnant though. I wasn't going to let anything get me down (laughs) Mm -hmm. because it was just such a long time coming. And I just knew that it was going to work. I was like, I know this is going to work. And I just spoke it. I just spoke it into the universe. Wow. I was like, this is going to be, and it just ended up working out. Uh It was hard. I mean, there was definitely, you know, you're waiting for that next beta and then the next one, but I, I tried to just be like, for this moment in time, for these two days, you are now this pregnant. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. then the next beta came back and it was like over 3000. And I was like, Oh my God, you know, okay, now I'm this pregnant for the next two days. Mm-hmm. Then they had me go again. And it was like, I don't know, 14,000. And I was like, okay, really good. And then they had me go back like a week later and I was like over 30,000 or something on my beta. And they were like, you're, you know, this is exactly where we want everything to be. And you can stop doing betas now. And I was able to schedule my, it actually worked out pretty cool because I was able to schedule my ultrasound with my very first IVF clinic. And I felt I was very close with their nurse there. Uh And, you know, they were very supportive of our journey. You know, they just want to see people get pregnant. They did. That clinic was small and I really, really liked it. Um, it's not, uh, he doesn't practice anymore. He's retired, uh-huh. but it was so awesome to be able to go yeah. back to my first doctor. It's and- like a full circle moment. Yeah. And they were the ones that got to do our first ultrasound where we got to hear a heartbeat and all that. So it was mm-hmm. really kind of a cool, it was, it was a total full circle moment of like, okay, we're back in here, but now we're actually pregnant after, you know, all these years. So three years almost. Wow. Um, oh so, yeah. Exhausting long journey. <laughs> so, oh my gosh, you went through so much. Um, there's, I'm just, I've been scrolling through Instagram as you're talking, just looking at all your incredible posts. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, I mean, you've, like you said, you're like an OG, like you've been on this for so long and talking about all the things, which I think is so awesome. There's the one where you're holding a board and it was, you know, genetics is the least of what makes me a mom, which is such a powerful statement. So tell me about that piece of it. So, you know, that board and that photo has been like one of my most liked photos and Mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, a lot of engagement and stuff on it and a lot of shares and things, because that applies to so many people. Like Mm -hmm. if you really think about genetics and families and stuff, there are so many people that are adopted or have, Mm -hmm. you know, just different situations, or, you know, maybe they had shitty parents and they're, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on here, but of course. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. The word fuck is in the title. So we're (laughs) good. Oh yeah. Duh. Okay. (laughs) So, you know, and maybe they were raised by their grandparents or something. I mean, it's not just people that come from a donor or an adopted family or foster or something. Mm -hmm. So that applies to like so many different people. And I think that, you know, you do have to grieve your genetics when it comes to egg or sperm donation for the person that is giving that up because, you know, you're gonna, your kid is going to be made with someone else's genetic, like mm-hmm. someone else's DNA. It's as simple as that. You know, it's 
but it's also, although it's a, it's a, it's, it's an extremely important part of the puzzle. I mean, you need a sperm and you need an egg. And if your egg sucks, then you got to use someone else's egg. You're not going to have a baby with just a sperm. So there's no other choice. Yeah. You know, you have to go that route. So it is a very, very, very important part of the puzzle and it holds, you know, what the kid's going to look like. But, and it, and it could hold some other things, you know, there definitely can be some medical conditions and things like that. And that's why donors are screened and um, there's mm-hmm. a lot of that goes, that goes along with it. But what I always tell people when they ask me about this is it's like, that's it. Like who this kid turns out to be is all on you. Mm-hmm. You get to just, you are the one in charge. I mean, you know, they're going to eventually make their own choice or not, but it's like, you're the one that's going to make this kid be either a really well-rounded polite, you know, person that has good morals and values or mm-hmm. you're an asshole kid, you know, and that's <laughs> right. the parent, no matter if you're, how you're related to them. Right. You know, if you're an aunt and you're raising your niece or something, you're the one that's in charge. So it's like, I always tell people that like, it sucks that you may never get to see what your genetics could have brought to the table. You know what I mean? Or you may never get to see a genetic kid of your own, but it's definitely becomes what I like to call an afterthought. I don't think about my donor every day. I mean, Amy, I love you, but I don't like look at Georgia and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is someone else's DNA. Like, yeah. I mean, like Georgia has amazing hair, right? Mm-hmm. My donor has amazing hair. I have terrible hair. So like I am, you know, I embrace those things that she gave to <laughs> Georgia because she has way better hair than I would have ever been able to give her. So, um, but there's so many things that you can't really know about being a parent to a donor conceived child until you are a parent to a donor conceived child. Mm -hmm. So I do try to tell people, you know, you do need to work on grieving your genetics. Mm -hmm. Um, Is it like a process of grieving, like the stages of grief kind of thing? Or like, does it get easier as time goes on or do you get triggered? It really wasn't. Yeah. Because again, I was very like, I want to be a mom and I don't really care how it happens. It did take me about those six months to really accept it. But once I realized that my eggs were not working, I gave my all to my eggs, nine embryos with my eggs and not one pregnancy. Yeah. I wasn't, I mean, there was no, that's crazy. Like that's nine potential children that I didn't have that were made from my eggs. Like my eggs are not giving me a kid. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of like accepted it for what it was and moved forward. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I remind myself, like, what if that IUI would have worked and I would have had a kid Mm -hmm. and then maybe like, maybe we tried some IVF or something and it didn't work or whatever. And we didn't end up pursuing the donor route. Like Georgia would not exist. And I would much rather have followed the path that I did Mm-hmm. you know, a million times over to have Georgia than to have a kid with my own genetics, because it truly, not that it's meaningless, you know, genetics are really important, but it just, it doesn't, it's not a, all of who you are. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like I'm going to be the one that's going to teach her like, you know, all the things, all the things about simple things to really complicated things. I'm the one that's going to have to have the conversations with her that are going to be uncomfortable and tough or, you know, if she gets bullied or she becomes a bully or, you know, when she gets her period or what, you know, all those things like yeah. that's not my donor doing it. Right. It's You're the mom. You're her right. mom. Right. So it's, it, it is a process, I think. And I think there's a lot to think about. And I do think that before you're a parent to a donor conceived child, you put these scenarios in your head, like, okay, what am I going to say when someone says something about, oh, she looks so much like you, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. 
you, and then before you're a parent, you you blow it up into these things that are like never even going to probably happen. Like the chances of these scenarios that you come up with in your head, mm-hmm. truly probably don't even, aren't even going to really happen. But mm-hmm. like, sometimes I use that comment as a, as an opportunity to tell my story. Like mm-hmm. when Georgia was first going to the doctor, one of the nurses was like, oh my gosh, she's so cute. She looks so much like you. And I was like, thank you. I said, that's super sweet. I I love getting that comment because she's actually not genetically related to me. So I love hearing that. That's a great answer. Somebody might, somebody might say that and I might be like, oh, thanks. You know, like I go into my hour long spiel about how this all panned out. Like I don't have time for that. I just keep moving on. Like I know what it is, but it's like, you just, and that's what I mean when I say there's certain things that you cannot, you can't have them explained to you mm-hmm. until you're really a parent of a donor conceived child. And all of those like concerns are absolutely valid and warranted and your feelings are warranted about it. But I definitely tell people like, if you feel like you need to seek counseling about it, seek counseling about it, because I do feel like there's certain things that you do need to be comfortable with and understand before you proceed with donor conception. Cause I have had people that would reach out to me and say like, this is how I feel. And I'll be like, you are not ready. Oh, really? Like what? Can you give an example? A lot of the concerns about like these types of scenarios, like these types of scenarios about, well, making the comment about looking like them. And then Mm -hmm. this, like someone in particular that made that comment kind of turned it into the, I mean, a paragraph long about maybe what her response would be. And then like her family and maybe not being ready to tell this child and all these things. Um, Mm. I am very, very like for telling your kid Mm -hmm. um, right off the bat. And some people have a really hard time with that. So that is a red flag for me to be like, okay, this is where you need to go seek counseling for this Mm -hmm. particular. They have this counseling for this in particular um, to get yourself comfortable with that because that's going to be really important. Mm -hmm. Um, Open dialogue with the kid especially, but I also am like a very big cheerleader for an open dialogue with everyone in your family because... Mm -hmm. If you're, you know, George is super close with her grandparents. They know her story. I mean, imagine if they didn't know and mm-hmm. then Georgia did know. And one day she told them and mm-hmm. they would be like, what on earth? Like open dialogue, right? It's like something I'm really for. It's most important though, for telling these kids right off the bat, because I will tell you, it's come up a lot lately with our international donor conception day, first time ever in 2021. Mm-hmm. And also in a Facebook group, I am in for donor conceived people and intended parents and all the, all the donor conception folks, people who find out when they're adults are very, not all of them, but there's a lot of anger and resentment mm-hmm. when they find out as adults, because they're finding out from some secret, you know, some aunt that slipped up or something. And it's like, if you put it in their heads from early on and just make it their normal, mm-hmm. then they're way more willing to just accept it. It's not even, it's a natural accepting of what it is because they don't know any different, mm-hmm. you know? Right. So we go through Georgia's story often. Um, I just made like kind of a, a book, a photo book with pictures of her and I wrote mm-hmm. out her story and we read it and she still has no clue. Yeah. Sure. She doesn't know what an egg helper is or an egg donor or anything like that. Yeah. I love that you did that though. That's so cool. So such a good suggestion too, for people who might be listening. For sure. A lot of people are like, how do I go about doing this? And there's so many books out there on Amazon. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different books, but I feel like the more you can personalize it, the better off it's going to be because they're going to associate like Georgia sees a picture of her with her donor. 
and she knows that that's Amy and she knows that this is, you know, that's her sister, Stella. Like she knows the names and stuff. Oh, wow. Still doesn't know what it means, of course. Right. But she's just always going to know that that's who those people are. And she's never going to know any different. Right. Never going to be like, when she's older, of course, we'll give her the full story. Yeah. Of all the things that we did. But I mean, that's just, you know, way beyond her comprehension at this point. So yeah, that's something that's really important is get just giving them the information from a young age so they don't know any different. I do want to ask you because I love talking about the notion of epigenetics. Sure. I'd love to hear your opinion on all of that. I've talked to Victoria Nino about that, who I'm sure you know very well, yes. probably. Yep. I love her. You know, she kind of introduced me to the what it was and talked about it a lot with me when I interviewed her. So, what's your take on epigenetics? I think it's amazing and I definitely feel like it's something that, you know, it's one of those terms or I don't know, you know, it's kind of relatively new. Mm-hmm. A lot of people aren't even familiar with the term, but I think it's a really really good way to kind of if you are having a hard time like accepting your donation, you know, donation being your route highly look into looking into epigenetics because for me, it gave me a little bit of a sense of, and I didn't even, honestly, I didn't really feel like I needed it, Mm -hmm. but I was able to do, you know, some research into epigenetics myself. And it just gives you like a little bit of sense of, oh, maybe there is some of her in me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, and it may not be much, but you know, at the science of it, you know, there's this quote about how a donor is the DNA, but it's basically like the blueprints of the house. I don't, you might have heard this before. Mm-hmm. So the donor's egg or the sperm or whatever, you know, is basically the, the blueprints of the house, but you, the mother, the intended parent, whatever mm-hmm. are carrying that baby. It's your blood that's connecting them with your umbilical, you know, with mm-hmm. the, the umbilical cord. And you're basically building the house, you're building the shell, you're building the walls, you're picking out the paint colors, you know, you're Mm -hmm. picking out the faucets, all those things. So I have always loved the epigenetics and that quote and all that, because it does really give you like a, just a sense of, okay, you know, I'm, I am contributing to this too. And as a, as a donor egg recipient, where I'm giving up my DNA, being able to carry was just so amazing because at least I got, you know, for me, I got to experience the pregnancy part of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know how sperm donation, you know, men, I don't really know how they feel about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And men are completely different emotionally than women are. Right. Um, But I loved that I was able to carry her and that she was in my belly. And like, I, you know, my blood got to, you know, go, go through her body and all those things. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I love epigenetics. I feel like if you're doubting um, the the egg donation route at all, look into epigenetics and just how amazing um, that research is. And I think there's like a lot more to be. You could do a whole podcast on that. Oh my god, I'm obsessed. So much with to it. be said about it. I fully believe in it, and I think Same. it's so cool. Yeah. Um, yes, epigenetics um, definitely yeah. awesome. Well, thank you so much, Elena. You're such a good mom. Thank and I'm you. so glad that you Thank shared you. your story yeah, and that you yeah, have your girl. It was a long journey. Um, we've tried for a sibling. We started trying for a sibling in 2018. We've tried three times. And unfortunately, we've had 
an early loss. We had um, a miscarriage with a DNC and then we had a failed transfer. I am actually on my sixth RE now because we moved our embryos up here to Chicago to Vios Fertility. You might be familiar oh, with yes. Jelani. Love Vios. So Dr. Jelani is my doctor now. Um, logistically, it just made a lot more sense for us to bring our embryos up here and just start doing things locally rather than flying down to Georgia and adding all that cost on to now yeah. because I don't have coverage anymore. Okay. Um, because my insurance changed at work. So yeah. we did move everything back up here. Our donor doesn't live in Georgia anymore. They actually moved to South Carolina. Okay. So same donor that you're working with though? Yeah. All of our embryos are from the same donor. And one, gotcha. so we have two embryos left and we are very up in the air as to what we're going to do with them. We're, you know, very, very torn. I'm literally like 50, 50 of what I want to do. And we may proceed and we may not. Mm-hmm. And if we don't, we're done. I mean, you know, we may be one and done. We may get another sibling. We're not sure, but that's going to be the end of the journey for us as far as that. We wouldn't pursue any further donors or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just been too long of a road. I'm ready to close. I'll never close the the chapter of infertility. It's Mm -hmm. always going to be with me. I'm always going to advocate. It's always going to be what my Instagram is about, but there's parts of the chapters that like just personally, I don't mind talking about it, but mm-hmm. there's just parts of it that I want to close. I don't want to have to be in this limbo of let's do a transfer. Let's not do a transfer. Let's, you know, every day I change my mind and I'm just over it thinking about it and trying to make the right decision. So I want to get myself to be able to close that chapter and just move on one way or the other. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks again, Elena. I loved talking to you. I'm so glad you're so open about your story. And if anybody has any donor egg questions or wants to talk to her, she is definitely available. So reach out to her. Also, just a quick reminder that Fertility Rally is celebrating its first birthday. So we have a very, very special annual rate of just 129 for the entire year, which includes our weekly support groups. So, so, so much more. So at $70 off, we're going to go back up in July. So we're open till June 7th. Head over to fertilityrally.com to take advantage of that amazing rate. Hope to see you guys there. And I will talk to you next time.